Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you have sent me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com or uh, have left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos. Uh, hey everybody, welcome to the show and uh, thank you for inviting me into your home again this week. We have some great questions and I've also been getting some really good ones from y'all that are in the queue right now. I wish I could answer all of them all at one go because there's some really good ones that have been coming in. So um, just know that if you're uh, asking me, it is going into the queue and I will cycle through them here and that's what I'm that's what I'm trying to do. So I also wanted to uh, just throw a little um, plug out for the uh, podcast this week and for uh, we did not do a uh, critical conversation show this last weekend, but I do hope you will check out the sensibly speaking podcast as well. And also I need to let you guys know that I have another channel. It's called Critical Clips, and it takes clips from these shows mostly, from the Q&A shows, as well as from my podcasts and other videos, and it just, you know, takes out little excerpts from them, and uh, there are hundreds, I think, well, I think well over 750 now videos on that channel. It posts every day, Monday through Friday, I post a new clip. They're anywhere from 2 to 10, 15-minute long clips. And uh, and you can get all the answers to all the questions that I've ever answered on Scientology on that channel, or at least most of them. A great many, a great many of them are there. So I highly recommend you check that channel out and give that a subscribe. And of course. I'm also going to ask real fast uh, that you like, share, uh, spread the good news about this channel around uh, to your friends, family, and social connections. I want to grow my channel, and I need your help to do it. So uh, please, if you are finding this channel entertaining, informative, and educational, then please consider sharing it with other people. And also, of course, consider supporting the channel through Patreon, PayPal, or Venmo. Links below. All right, let's get to your questions. Michael Yoder, in one lecture, LRH mentioned Thetans, the obscene dog, and Incident 1. What is the obscene dog, and how does that lead to Incident 1? All right, Michael, thank you for this question, and it's a good one. There's, I will explain all the little weird terms there. This might come across as this very weird-sounding question, and it is. Um, but I thought I might take this opportunity to first discuss the bubble worlds that cults create, the, the mythos and belief set and, and everything else that goes into making a destructive cult. What it is, well, a big part of that is creating an alternate reality in which the cult members live. And let's keep in mind that the word cult comes from culture. And this is a little culture that these groups create, and they have their own ideas, their own mannerisms, their own dress often, um, their own you know, way of looking and talking, loaded language, this kind of thing. And really, sometimes they even have their own history. We know that L. Ron Hubbard tried to write his own biography and re rewrite the, the events of his own life so that he was the big hero from day one. And yet it's not just that history that gets rewritten, but all of history gets rewritten by these groups in many, many interesting and devious and bizarre ways. And from the outside, you might look in on this and think, well, that's insane. Why would somebody possibly think that 
you know, things like the universe could be four quadrillion years old, which is what incident one in your question, that incident happened, according to L. Ron Hubbard, four quadrillion years ago. And just for fun, I'm going to throw the number four quadrillion on the screen right now so you all can see how many zeros that is. It's a big number. It's an unimaginably large number. You really can't imagine that size of number, right? It's just too just too much for the human mind, really. At least it is for mine. But that's not the point. The point is that these groups create their own history and their own mythos and their own cosmology and, and all of this. And um, and this is not just destructive cults that do this, of course, but when you uh, create this situation and then you add all of the abuse and the us versus them and all that stuff, you get these destructive cults. Scientology is uh, has taken this to the nth degree, right? They have really gone, Hubbard just ran with this. But I wanted to comment on the fact of how Hubbard went about doing this because it was quite clever. Rather than offering a a a nailed down i've I, i've commented many times in the past how vague and generalized and sort of hit and miss and here and there the the scientology mythology or cosmology is right the history that scientology's claims about the history of the universe the real history like how what really went down are, are vastly different than what you uh, will get in any science-based textbook anywhere because Hubbard just eschews all that. He just throws all that out the window. He just says historians and physicists and and uh, astrophysicists and scientists are just, just to a T. None of them really know what they're talking about. They're all, they've all been fooled. They've all been um, implanted. They've all had things, you know, done to them in their past, just like all of us have. We all have. If you're on planet Earth, Things have been done to you in the past, L. Ron Hubbard claims. Very, very, very uh, powerful things that have altered your ability to think or even perceive. And uh, and this is common to all of us. And this includes scientists. And so Hubbard sort of infers that, that scientists and other people are not, they're not all just... Uh, uh, evil intention. They're not purposefully trying to pull the wool over everybody's eyes, but they really don't know what they're talking about because their science is wrong. And Hubbard was able to just dash off these kind of toss-off explanations for why they're wrong and just dismiss them wholesale. For example, he would say that carbon-14 dating is wrong because they have misestimated how much carbon exists in the universe. And because they have this grossly wrong value for how much carbon exists, the carbon-14 dating process is misestimating how old things are. And Hubbard makes the claim very loudly in his lectures that the, that the universe here is much, much older than science here on Earth thinks it is. And that everybody here on Earth is, is rather primitively informed by primitive science that doesn't know what it's talking about. And L. Ron Hubbard because of his uh, special line in with the e-meter and with the auditing process, was able to recover memories, both his own and other people's, that prove this, right? These subjective memories that people come up with in auditing, Hubbard claims, that's real. 
and the science and the experimentation and all the work that's been done, yeah, that's all the crap, right? They're all wrong. <laughs> okay. So that's the basis on which Hubbard, you know, uh, sort of says that we have proof that these things are real, that these incidents that he refers to in the past are real things that really happened and really affected us in very drastic and important ways. And it's only, Hubbard claims, through the Scientology process of auditing that you can recover these memories and actually regain your former uh, you know, vast and, and powerful spiritual states and, and, and states of being. So, so that's kind of the, 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 the groundwork for this that I kind of wanted to establish a little bit. And I was surprised and quite delighted to find a few Wikipedia pages and other articles covering this in some detail uh, and including... I thought you guys might appreciate this a little bit because there's a whole Wikipedia page on this term, incident. Okay, there is a number of incidents in Scientology, but incident one and incident two are kind of important ones. Incident two is the whole Xenu story. That whole narrative that you see on South Park with the DC-8s and the planes and the, and the volcanoes blowing up and the implanting and, the, and all of that is incident two. Incident one is something that happened significantly earlier. Incident two happened 76 million years ago. Incident one happened four quadrillion years ago. Okay, now the word incident in a, um, is a specific thing in Scientology. Uh, and I'm just going to read from the Wikipedia page here because it's uh, easiest to give it to you that way. L. Ron Hubbard used the term incident in a specific context for auditing in Scientology and Dianetics. The description of space operatic events in the universe's distant past involving alien interventions in past lives. It is a basic belief of Scientology that a human being is an immortal spiritual being termed a Thetan trapped on planet Earth in a meat body. Although incidents can be apparent anywhere, Hubbard's writings describe some in particular set in Earth's prehistory. Um, in his writings and lectures, Hubbard describes incidents said to have occurred to Thetans during the past few trillion years. Most of these followed a consistent pattern wherein a hostile alien civilization captured and brainwashed free Thetans. Often, instances of implantation are termed incidents, while the subject of the implants are often termed goals. Okay, so you'd be captured as a Thetan in some distant time in the past by some alien civilization, because it's not happening here on Earth. This is stuff that predates Earth. So when we say alien, we just mean non-Earth, right? So back in the day, you're floating around as a free Thetan, and you get captured electronically. They can use, like, I kind of picture Ghostbusters with the proton beams. They capture you, and they trap you. And then they beat you as a Thetan with electronics, and they show you pictures, and they, they, they clobber you with sensation, and make you think that you have experienced something or lived through something that you didn't really. They implant you. They put false, 
memories into you as a spiritual being. And those false memories contain commands or suggestions. It's a kind of heavy-duty force and, you know, uh, infused hypnosis, right? You are made to think differently as a result of these implants. And Hubbard said there were thousands of these implants, but there were specific ones that he identified and talked about, and these are often referred to as incidents, which is why I read from this whole thing. So, um, and of course, according to Hubbard, only Scientology's methods can remove the resulting neuroses that are installed in a thetan because of these implants. And if you're wondering, well, why would these implants be done? Why? What was the goal of these civilizations? It was conquest. It was the idea. The idea was to trap thetans, make them stupid, uh, implant them, keep them under control. Because if you're trying to establish a space civilization in the distant past here in this galaxy or universe, and you were one of these, you know, uh, civilizations that was doing this, you didn't want spirits running around gumming up the works and messing things up and making things disappear and and screwing with your with your installations and stuff. You're you're you got a goal, right? And imagine if. We, as a society, were moving forward into space, and we were suddenly being attacked by these spirits, by spiritual entities, and we couldn't really identify them so easily. We couldn't see them. You couldn't hear them. They were spiritual. But we developed some kind of electronic technology, again, a la Ghostbusters. It's really that kind of simple Simon kind of thinking. It's like proton packs and stuff. It's electronics. It's something that is going to trap this spiritual entity, this Thetan. And in a force field kind of thing, and then you can convince it by beating on it, you know, to, to, to punish it into complying, into compliance, right? The whole idea, Hubbard said, is that this was all being done in order to get the Thetans, the free Thetans, to stop messing with, you know, uh, what was going on and get with the program. And, uh, and if this all sounds a little loosey-goosey and a little weird, well, it is. Uh, but this is kind of what you infer from all of this. And Hubbard described many, many, many incidents throughout the history of Scientology. He wrote lots of bulletins and books and gave lectures where he talked about different kinds of incidents that had happened at different times. Okay, Um there's, for example, I'm just, just randomly pulling from here. There is the bodybuilder incident. Uh, took place around 50 million years ago, and variants of it are said by Hubbard to have recurred often, wherein the Thetan was forced to fight with his own attention units and build a body from them. Okay, right? So a Thetan was, was, was stuck in something, and because it was using its energy in such a way that it was building a body. And that's the bodybuilder incident. And that's one such incident. There's a fly trap or bubblegum incident. There's a coffee grinder. There's the ice cube incident. There's the jack-in-the-box. And here we get to the um, OT3 incidents. In 1967, L. Ron Hubbard released... OT level three. And on OT level three, he talks all about the Xenu thing. That's incident two. But he also makes reference to incident one. And incident one is set four quadrillion years ago, as we've said, 
wherein, and here's the description for it, wherein an unsuspecting Thetan was subjected to a loud snapping noise, followed by a flood of luminescence, then saw a chariot, followed by a trumpeting cherub. After a loud set of snaps, the Thetan was overwhelmed by darkness. This is described as the implant opening the gateway to this present universe, separating Thetans from their static or natural godlike state. And this was described in OT Level 3. So Incident 1 is the earliest incident Hubbard says exists in, in this universe with Thetans here in the physical universe. So, so apparently... We've been around, if you want to establish a date in Scientology for how long we've been here in the messed universe, this physical universe, four quadrillion years. Wow, right? And, you know, of course, this does not address how this physical universe was created, who created it, where it came from, what, who's, where's this chariot with this cherub coming from? Hubbard doesn't say. All you get is this. And you're told to audit it, to recall it, to go back and remember it in your auditing and address it, you know, with the way the procedure of OT3. So this is this uh, incident one. Okay. Now you also asked about the um, obscene dog incident. And here is, uh, this is just another one of these incidents, just like the coffee grinder, bodybuilder, Jack in the Box. The obscene dog, here's, ex here's everything Hubbard has to say about this. In the, and this was, this was given in a lecture a year after OT3 was released. This was October 3rd, 1968. The lecture was called Assists. And Hubbard said, there's the incident called the obscene dog, which is just a little bit later than incident one. And sometimes actually by running it, why you can get the PC into incident one. The obscene dog was a sort of a brass dog in a sitting position, and anybody who got around to the front of the dog got caught in some electric, electronic current and passed through the dog to the dog's rear end and spat out. Thetans didn't like this. That's it. That's the obscene dog incident. It makes no sense at all, does it? Even in the even in the context of everything I've described to you about how we have these bubble worlds and they make their own history, and you go back and Hubbard says the universe is four quadrillion years old, and we were all introduced to it through a cherub and a trumpeting chariot and this kind of thing, and you kind of go, all right, I guess. And then he says a little bit later, this happens to you. There's a brass dog and you get sucked in and pushed through it. I don't, I, you know, it was reading stuff like this that really started separating my mind from... <laughs> You know, the logic of it, the, the, the assault on my ability to think was just too great. 
I, I cannot imagine any reason, any way that such that this could possibly be real. A dog four quadrillion years ago? Dogs are something that evolved here on Earth. <laughs> How are we supposed to have dogs four quadrillion years ago? But even if we do, even if dogs are just some construct that we created here from some construct from four quadrillion years ago, what would be the point of sucking somebody in with an electronic current and passing them through a dog's rear end? What? What? And he doesn't even address it. He just says people didn't like it very much. Thetans didn't like it much. This is how you build a cosmology that will stick people to it. Because while I say I rejected it, right? This is this is something that will stick your attention. You will be like, what, what? What, there must be more to this. I must not understand this. There must be some other explanation for this. And you start searching and searching and searching and searching. And this is what I did for years in Scientology. I would read about some of these incidents and I would and I didn't I didn't read about the obscene dog incident because this was confidential information. This was upper level stuff. I never heard of the obscene dog when I was in Scientology. But it was when I was getting out of Scientology and I was finding out about it, reading this stuff, that I was like, oh, my God. But while I was in Scientology, there were a lot of incidents that I could be aware of, that I could read about and did read about and tried so hard to try to make sense of them. There were the aircraft door goals. Uh, these were implanted between 315 trillion years ago and 216 trillion years ago aboard the fuselage of an aircraft with the subject Thetan held motionless in front of the aircraft door. Hubbard writes that the goal items were laid in with explosions. The specific goals given in this implant were variants of the command to create. So here you have this set of goals called, or this implant, or this incident, called the aircraft door goals, where you are held in place in front of what look like aircraft doors, and you are being, and explosions are being set off, and you are being made to, to come up with variations of a goal to create things, to create, 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 make, to, to, uh, to imbue with life, whatever, whatever the variations of the, of the command would be uh, that would make sense to you. Um, that happened to you, apparently, from 315 trillion years ago to 216 trillion years ago, right? And we're just supposed to buy this. This is just, this is just Hubbard just says, yeah, we found this in auditing. We discovered this in auditing people. They came up with this stuff. And it turns out it, more than one person came up with this. Lots of people have this. And so we're going to do this. And that's not even what really happened. What really happened is Hubbard just sat in a room and made this crap up. But he said that this was stuff that was coming out of people's auditing, or maybe one person imagined this, and then Hubbard went, ah, yes, everybody's got this one. I mean, who knows exactly, precisely what it was that compelled Hubbard to write this stuff down. I'm just sort of imagining reasons why this would, you know, that the, all these things would have come up. But you have tons and tons of these things. And... And the reason why it's clever and was and 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 I and I kind of say that is because it was so haphazard. So 
hit and miss. So, well, here's a little bit of enticing information. Here's a little bit of theory. Here's a little bit. Here's another incident that doesn't sound like it makes any damn sense. And and it was at another time period. And then here's another one. And then here's another one. What you do is you fascinate people. You get you you almost beguile them. You know, Scientologists. They're like, what? 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 Like they're amazed by these things. I mean, when I first was reading about these as a Scientologist, before I was having doubts and problems with things, I was I was I was invigorated. I was enthused. I thought this was amazing information. I couldn't believe that that we had this uh, line in on the past and that the past was so wildly different from what we were taught here, you know, in our schools and by science and stuff like that. And there's a there's a sort of empowering feeling you get from having this kind of sacred lore, this hidden knowledge, the secret truth. If you buy into this stuff and you think this is this is really powerful knowledge, then it's empowering. It makes you feel powerful. And this is this is why, you know, conspiracy theorists uh, get off on what they're doing, why Scientologists get off on what they're doing. Mormons have the same thing. They've got an entire backstory, confidential information spanning back, you know, all these years and, you know, and all this stuff. And uh, and it's all super, super hush-hush, totally confidential stuff and involves magic underwear and and having your own planet and all kinds of other alternate history stuff. And and so the Mormons are no different than the Scientologists as far as this goes. They've got the same kind of apparatus in place. They just don't happen to use an e-meter and they don't, you know, do the same thing Scientology does. They're not quite as invasive. But in terms of their cosmology, it's just as nonsensical and, and goofy as Scientology's. And uh, and you find this in other uh, groups as well, right? There's tons of UFO cults and alien-based cults and, and lots and lots of groups with lots and lots of myths. And, uh, and so basically, the, the, um, the, to, to finish answering your question, Michael, just now that I've kind of gone on this whole roll about Scientology cosmology, um, you asked how would it be that incident that the that the obscene dog would lead to incident one, um, and the way that goes is simply Dianetics and Scientology theory on how you audit. Right, you start later and you go earlier, and earlier similar incidents will start presenting themselves in your memory if you're sitting there working on this engram, this horrible thing that happened to you. And let's say it happened to you 40,000 years ago, and you're working it, and you're working it, and you're talking about it, you're going over it and over it. Hubbard said that what will happen or what can happen is an earlier similar incident is holding that 40,000-year-old incident in place, right? It's not, it doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a chain of incidents. It's connected by common perceptions or, or experience to an earlier incident. And the earliest incident on the chain is what actually holds the whole chain of incidents in place. And so what you want to do is you want to find that earliest or most basic incident. And incident one, this whole cherub and, and snapping and entering the physical universe incident, is the most basic basic of all basics, right? It's the first thing that ever happened to you coming into the physical universe. But if you are engaged in looking at this obscene dog incident, well, it's the, the it 
is so far down the line that you're not going to have a whole lot earlier similar coming up there except incident one because it's right up there, right? So that's kind of why it is that Hubbard would say that that the obscene dog incident would lead you to incident one is because that's how Scientology auditing is sort of put together or structured. So I hope that, I hope all this makes sense. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm kind of assuming you guys are, are, are grounded a little bit in some of the stuff I've said about all this stuff before, cause I've talked about this so many times, but I thought, um, I always like going into the, the creation of the alternate reality that cults create, right? I, I find that how they do that and how people buy into it, a, a fascinating study. And, and um, because you can get people, basically where I want to go with this, right, is that you can get people to believe anything. Anything. There is no idea too ridiculous. There is no event too, you know, outlandish. There is no history too bizarre for someone to not be able to believe it if you give them a good enough reason to believe it. And I just wanted to kind of talk about all this ridiculousness to really get back down to that point, is that the human mind is capable of basically believing anything if you give it a good enough reason, especially a good enough emotional reason to accept that that is how reality is. We can view reality however we want. And that is both liberating and terrifying. So, there you go. Nick C. There is a growing body of research linking vulnerability to conspiracy theories with cognitive difficulties arising during childhood. To oversimplify... People who can't think well think poorly. Clearly, we can't exclude people from the public discourse simply because they are cognitively impaired through no fault of their own. But how does one discuss complicated things with people who think poorly without seeming patronizing? Perhaps there are things we can learn from special education teachers. Any other ideas? Okay, thanks for this question, Nick. This is one of those tough ones where we're going to have to sort of acknowledge the awfulness of people. Um, I, I, I wish I had maybe a better approach to this, but we are going to have to acknowledge this from the get-go, right? People have status buttons, and they have uh, status and class hierarchy awareness, right? They're very, very, very super hyper aware of their status in any social hierarchy that they're part of. Uh, we're always aware of where we stand in relation to other people. And if we don't know where we stand, we fret and, and are concerned and even have anxiety about that until we sort it out. We, um, this, is, this has a lot to do with social credit and standing and, and, and uh, power and influence and you know what we can and can't get away with and stuff like that. And every single human being becomes aware of this in one degree or another because it's part of being a social animal. And we are all social animals. And this socialization process starts very early in our lives. These are what these stages of development that you might have heard about are kind of all about. Is A big part of those stages of development have to do with our socialization process. How do 
we learn how to get along well with others? Or how do we learn how to get along, whether it's well or badly? So much of our young life is spent working this out, right? When you go to mate friends for the first time, you go to kindergarten or, or pre- preschool, and this is where this process really gets going. Uh, it starts at home, of course, with the establishment of parents, authority figures, um, you know, maybe other figures, other family come into this or close friends of the family or whatever, as you're a very, very, very young human being growing up and these people are in your lives. But once you start interacting with other people is when this whole socialization education begins. And depending on how that goes for a person is going to set the course for the rest of their life. And there's no way to helicopter this and control it and idealize it and make it the best possible experience because everybody's kind of different. You know, and this is where it's it's not nature, it's not nurture. It really is kind of both uh, feeding into this thing. And the reason I'm harping about this is because these these this time period in our life, which we really have very little control over, and honestly, most of us have very little memory of. This was the time period when we really established so much of who we became, who we are now. And how we relate to other people. And if you have bad experiences then, you might not relate well with people for the rest of your life. Uh, if, you are, if you are being raised in a traumatizing home situation with violence, and then you're socialized into a situation with that broken trauma, and you have attachment issues, you have a hard time making connections with other people, you have a hard time trusting other people because you're coming from a broken home where there's no trust there, you know, you're set up for failure right from the get-go before you even had a chance. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to fail, but it's being set up to fail. And I, and again, I'm talking about this because I'm trying to make the point that the factors of how we, of who we become in our lives have a lot to do with things that we never had any control over. And so, so learning in later in life, if you've, you know, if you've had bad times, bad experiences in the past, this could, this could impair your ability to get along with people, right? This can also impair your ability to learn, to study, to have attention to study. Uh, this ADHD could enter into this. Complex PTSD could enter into this. Right? There's a lot of things that can happen depending on, on your experiences. The quality of your education, uh, you know, again, the quality of your ability to pay attention to things, all of this has to do with how smart or stupid you are is kind of where I'm trying to go with all of this, okay? Is it's not just a matter of what brain you were born with. It also has to do with how that brain was developed, so you have a couple of you have a couple of very important factors there in our development. Now I'm now this is it's important to talk about this because we are now living in a time where we have an awareness of this. This is relatively new. Up until 50 100 years ago, nobody thought about any of this at all. No one cared to they didn't have the tools to, and they didn't have the awareness or the time or resources to, but now we do. And as we have seen 
the evolution and the speed up of the evolution uh, in the civil rights arena, in the human rights arena in the in the 20th century. You know, in the in the same time period that we saw the most horrific, traumatizing, awful events in all of history between World War One, World War Two, all the other nonsense of the 20th century, we also saw some of the most amazing forward progress in the sciences and in the humanities. Actually, really, what we saw was the formation of the social sciences into something that is really, really trying to be a science. Now, I'm, again, I'm kind of going off on all of this to, to make this point that we are better set up now to understand these factors and these problems better than we ever have before. And I, that's an important thing to keep in mind, because if we look to the thousands of years of history up to now as our guide, then we're going to, then it, for the future, then that's not, then the, then the out, outlook isn't so good, right? We have treated each other pretty badly over the millennia um, because of this desire for social standing and influence and power and all of that. Those factors don't just go away because we have a heightened awareness of what's causing them. But on the other hand, the more we understand about this stuff, the less anxious we have to be about it, the more we can do things about it, and the more certain and positive we can be in directing the course of people's lives psychologically and socially so that they have better outcomes. And we have, in a word, less stupid people. I mean, I hope my whole argument here has kind of made sense as to why I would say that. Is we're really trying to get to a place where it's not it, where it's not like <laughs> I'm talking about IQ levels. I'm talking about people's ability to get along with each other. I'm talking about people's ability to learn, to interact, to get through these stages of development in such a way that they actually accomplish each stage, that they do learn trust, that they do have. Uh, that they are able to form good, decent attachments, not not bad, you know, uh, untrustworthy, uh, broken relationships, right? That can happen and does happen so often because of people's broken pasts. So the more we can understand this, the more we can deal with it or that we can go back and repair or work with people who didn't, you know, to fill in those stages. I mean, hell, this is what's happening with me in my own therapy is we have been we have been dealing with certain things that uh, were broken in me because of early life experiences or because of the cult experiences that I had, which were early, mid and late life experiences. And all of those contributed to my own sense of self, my own ability to trust, my own ability to form relationships with people. All of that had a tremendous, you know, that whole cult experience and and growing up in a cult had a tremendous influence on my ability to relate with others, obviously, and uh, relate with, you know, myself and how I thought about, you know, my own self-image and all that kind of thing. So here you're asking about how do we deal with people who can't think too well and have this vulnerability to conspiracy theories. And I guess what I'm trying to say is we deal with them with compassion, tolerance, and understanding. And that's a lot of work. It's hard to do. It takes, it takes education. It takes understanding. It takes a commitment. It takes willpower. 
And not everybody has that. And so this is going to be a slow process, right? People get very impatient, very upset with people who utter inanities and, and, and say dumbass things, right? And when you start talking about a flat earth or you start talking about how, you know, Donald Trump is Jesus resurrected or you start talking about how, uh, you know, the chemtrails are coming for us and, you know, these ridiculous ridiculous, nonsensical, completely delusional ideas that conspiracy theorists cling to so strongly. Well, all I can say is that's a hard problem to solve. And the only way you can relate with these people on a one-on-one directly and talk to them is to not do so in a pattern, as you mentioned, in a, without seeming patronizing. Well, don't be patronizing, right? Respect the person you're talking to. Talk to them at a level that they can understand is what it really kind of comes down to. It's a, it's it's not that we don't know this. It's that the problem is overcoming our own impulsive need to be right all the time and to lord that rightness over others, and that comes from our own bullshit, and that comes from our own uh, understanding of our positions and our social hierarchies. And if we feel that we're not in a position that we deserve to be or should be, we can get kind of pissy about it, get pretty upset, right, and not be happy. And we can take that out on others. And we can try to lord our position over others and stuff like that. And that's what gets in the damn way of having decent conversations with conspiracy theorists. And, of course, dealing with their own inability to understand all the things that I'm talking about. Because pretty much by definition, people who are in alternate reality, you know, bubble worlds or who have adopted this, you know, we know that they are doing so out of out of emotional needs. But we also know that they're doing so out of a gross ignorance of all the things I've told just told you. Right? They don't understand themselves. And so how could they even begin to start understanding the world? You know, they, these are people who uh, have broken stages of development, have grossly bad attachment issues a lot of the time, right? Have, have very big trust issues. So, so you're dealing with people who have all those things I was talking about. And then you're coming at them with your own crap, right? So, so it's kind of on us, uh, those of us who know and understand this stuff, to kind of park our own bullshit and just deal with the person in front of us in a respectful, compassionate way and try our best to help them through these issues, right? But the problem, the, 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 the reason that this becomes the, so hard to do it also has to be acknowledged as part of this picture, is that you don't really have their cooperation or assistance in helping them, right? And here I'm talking about the conspiracy theorists, right? These are people who do not see that what they are in is a problem. And so it's very, very hard to change somebody or even talk to them about changing their mind or position if they don't see any problem whatsoever in their position or in their attitude or in the way that they are approaching things. So 
even getting them, even getting the conversation going to the point of, well, is there a problem? How is there a problem? Well, what could the problem be? You know, even that is is our significant strides forward before you even start tackling or breaking apart their conspiracy mindedness, right? The conspiracy is a solution to a problem. What's the problem? That's what you want to dig down and find out. But to get that person willing to tell you about that and work with you on that, man, that is so much work. It's so much work. And you know, and at the end of the day, one of the things that we have to kind of ask ourselves is, you know, what's the return on investment there? You know, it's a hard, it's a lot of work. Is there going to be a good worthwhile return on that investment? You know, is it worth my time to, you know, talk to Cletus, the QAnon supporter, right? And, uh, and deal with his false information and get him out of that alternate bubble, you know, world that he's in, is it, you know, is that worth my time? So what I've kind of done here in this answer is try to lay out the bigger picture problem with with the scenario or with the question you asked, asked Nick, um, because I want to kind of embrace the bigger issue there. Because if we don't look at it that way and kind of address it or approach it from that point of view, then we're really not going to resolve much of anything as far as I can tell. Um, this is a long process. This is not something you're going to get... You know, I'm not talking here about, okay, we're going to, you know, grab Cletus, the QAnon supporter, and we're going to, you know, sort him out in an afternoon. It's, uh, you know, we're talking about societal shift here. So we're talking about years and years and years of work. Uh, but like I was trying, what I'm trying to say is we've made so much progress and we're going to continue to make this progress. And we're going to continue to work to understand and, and deal with people's um, shortcomings better than we have in history. And, I, and, it's, and it's from that hopeful, optimistic point of view that I was answering this, and I hope that came across. And uh, feel free to ask me anything more about this because I, I feel like I might have been come across like I was rambling a little bit here, even though I, I, I did have an answer, and I hope that answer came across. Anyway, there you go. Joe B., could you explain what the Sunshine Rundown is and what it's supposed to accomplish? Is it a required or elective part of Scientology's bridge to total freedom? The Sunshine Rundown is basically the action of taking a walk and looking around at things after you've achieved the state of clear. That's it. That's what it is. You walk around and you notice things. It takes about 15 minutes. It's a completely bullshit exercise. And by the way, I think you pay about 1000 bucks for it. I uh, could be wrong about that, but that's what it is. And it's supposed to orient you to your new state of being as a clear. You asked, I answered. <laughs> John O. Nolan. When Mike Rinder and Marty Rathbun were still in the church, how did the staff and Sea Org view them? Were they held in high regard and admired somewhat similar to how David Miscavige is viewed? Were they feared somewhat? Okay, thanks for this question, actually. It's a good one. Um, yeah, uh, senior executives are respected, basically, because of their post or position. People automatically in the Sea Org have a certain degree of respect for them. And when they are speakers at international events, which Mike Rinder used to be a regular speaker at, I'm talking about back in the 90s and you know early 2000s, um, 
then they were in the public eye and people kind of, oh, he's the guy who runs the off special affairs. He's the guy who's in charge of all the tech. This is the person who, you know, sees to the expansion of Dianetics. You have these different executives who come out and do these talks. And so generally it was one of respect. Now, when they would come around in person to the bases, these are senior, senior Scientology executives. They're international executives. I was working at the continental level, so it was like, oh, whoa, you know, the international guys. And these were people who had power and authority, and so absolutely they were feared because, you know, they could uh, they could get you in trouble if you were back flashy or, you know, somehow became a problem to them or didn't comply with their orders or something like that. It was never, though, it was never the same as David Miscavige, right? It's it, it's a Miscavige is a different kind of figure than the international executives or the other people. I knew personally international executives that I had a relationship, a working relationship with from my job. And so they would come down, they knew me, I knew them, we would talk, we would work together, whatever. Um, you know, that that happened, and, and I could kind of get along with those people, but it was always, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. Like, there was always this pressure on me when I was around those people. It was never, I, I don't know if I used, just used the word comfortable, but it was, it, was, it was more comfortable than it was with Miscavige. But, but don't, um, it wasn't like I was calm or chill ever when I was talking with international executives. And I, and from what I observed with other people, it was the same thing with them too, as far as other Sea Org members. We were always nervous and kind of kind of walking on eggshells a little bit, a little careful, a little trepidatious, right? But when Miscavige was around, you, you were just terrified. It was just straight up terror. I mean, it was just, you know, you just, you know, you called it awe, you called it, uh, respect, but it was terror, right? We were just cowering, you know, kind of, kind of thing when Miscavige was around, you kind of wanted him to talk to you, but you didn't, you, you know, you wanted favorable attention, but you really didn't want any attention at all because you knew you weren't going to get favorable attention because look at all these problems in your area and things weren't going well because they were never going well. And so the last thing you wanted was, you know, him coming around and asking you about questions or asking you things. Because the thing also about Miscavige when he came around is he had a whole entourage and every single thing this guy said, somebody was writing down and then they were recording your answers too. They would walk around with little tape players and, and record him and record you. That didn't happen with anybody else, right? They, when, when Mike Rinder came around, nobody was recording everything he was saying. When uh, Marty Rathman came around, nobody, nobody was writing down every word he said or every order he gave. But if Miscavige gave you an order, you were going to get it in triplicate in about four minutes. And there were going to be people following up with you on a daily basis to make sure those orders got executed. Nobody else in Scientology's command structures, orders are treated that way. Right? Not like that. 
So, um, so yeah, Miscavige is definitely in a whole nother level than anybody else. But the international executives were were definitely respected, admired, and in many, many, many cases, they were even liked. You know, they came across as friendly, as helpful. They were um, sometimes stern, right? Always very, very like on purpose right on on target right they were they were kind of we looked at them that way they were tra- they were they were the people who were coming around and making sure things were getting done you know and that kind of thing so yeah i, th- I don't know i think that's kind of how i can best describe that right now is from my from my memory of that um i hope that gives a little bit of a, an idea of what the differences and similarities were between Miscavige and the other Sea Org senior, senior executives. All right, guys. Well, you know, I spent so much time talking and answering the first couple of questions this week that we're going to cut this one short after just four questions. Uh, I think that's a first for us. Uh, but I really had a lot to say on those first couple. And I hope that those answers were were useful, entertaining, and informative in some fashion. I really am trying to do my best here. But you guys let me know. If uh, if, the, if I'm going on too long or if there's too much here or if I'm not being clear about what I'm doing or whatever, you guys just let me know. I want to give clear answers and I want to give complete answers to your questions so that uh, so that we have, you know, closure on this. Uh, but uh, But I might be going on too much. You guys let me know. All right. Thanks for coming around and listening, and I will see you guys next week. Bye-bye.